Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to The Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Boudis. On today's show, we brought on a special guest, Bob Wheeler. Bob's a financial expert and motivator, a book author, and the founder of The Money Nerve. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Mark. Great to be here. I'm excited for today's episode. I think the topic of emotions and money is really relevant, especially in today's world with everything going on. Absolutely. And, you know, we think we don't have emotional attachments to our money, but we do. (laughs) Yeah. So how did you get started focusing on, you know, looking at working with people's relationship with money? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a CPA and I'm a tax practice, uh, have about a thousand clients. And as I was working with my clients, I noticed that they would go out and do the exact opposite of what I thought was pretty sound practical advice. And so that was interesting. And then at the same time, when I got my CPA license, my finances were a mess. Like I was terrible with money. And yet people around me that were in you know, like secretaries and things like that were seeming to make better financial choices than I was, um, even though I could give great advice. Uh, so I had to do like a personal journey and really start looking at what was my own financial belief around money and, and like these emotional things that were coming in. And so I started doing my homework and realizing that I had a lot of emotional issues around money and decisions that I'd made as a kid. And, and then started exploring that with clients, discovering a lot of them same thing, right? Even though they were millionaires or billionaires, there was still all this emotional stuff going on that really related back to what they grew up in and what they were taught or some experience that they had. Then it got me really curious. So I started really diving into it. So is that, do you think most people's emotional or how they react to money, it's things that they may have picked up or learned? And I always talk about, you know, when I grew up, the financial literacy in school, classes in school about finance was very limiting. Yeah. And so you either picked up, you know, habits from your parents, which may yeah. maybe were good, maybe were were bad, but has it gotten any better with with where do where do people learn about money now? Well, you know, they still don't teach it enough. They really don't. Um and and what happens is we I I guess we're supposed to learn through osmosis, right? It's just supposed to happen. Most people are not having conversations with their kids. Most adults are ashamed to have conversations about money. And when clients come to me, they'll say to me, I'm sure you're judging me. And you must think I'm a horrible person. And I'll say, no, I've been in the same boat. I've made the same mistakes. It's all good. But what happens is, you know, we started making decisions when we're four, five, six, seven years old. We start, I'm bad with money. I'm good with money. Mommy and daddy always fight about money. So don't ever talk about money. And then we just start to internalize it. So there's a lot of shame. And then we're like the only one. We're the only one that doesn't know. Everybody else looks like they got it together. I think in today's culture with with social media, all these things, we look at other people, we just see a snapshot and say, oh my God, they've got it amazing. But we don't see 10 minutes later when they're filing for bankruptcy or, you know, two hours earlier when they were, you know, grinding through the mud. Like we, we're only just seeing that picture of this perfection. And then we think that's the measure. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about that. Someone who's in that situation, but also going back to kids and is there a right way to, 
to teach them about about money and and the relationship with it? Yeah, well, I think it's to just start having conversations. You know, it doesn't mean you have to disclose, hey, mom and dad are close to bankruptcy. Hey, mom and dad have so much credit card debt where it's overwhelming and we'll probably don't have a place to live. I mean, you don't have to terrify the kids. But you can certainly say when a kid says, hey, I really want this toy. Instead of saying, you're a selfish, greedy kid, or you should be grateful that you have a house to live in. You say, well, you know, we have to make choices. And so sometimes we have to choose between eating, paying the rent, or buying toys, or you've already got a lot of toys, or we'll buy you a toy, but you have to give two to charity. I mean, we can have these kinds of conversations. But I remember I was in a toy store in February um, one year, and this little kid was asking for something, and the mom said, that's it. I'm telling Santa Claus what a little brat you are. Now, it's February. He's got till December. He is pleading. Tears are pouring. He's like, mommy, please, please, please don't tell And I thought that's child abuse, right? Because she could have just said, look, it's not, not right now. We'll save it for your birthday or let's, you save up some money. I'll save up some money and we'll do this together, right? We can teach them in a healthy way without having to download them with how to invest in a 401k. But I think we can certainly start having these conversations with them um, and treat them like adults, young adults. So fast forward to, let's say when they are adults, yeah. um, then what, you know, let's say they are having trouble with, with their money or, or the relationship with it, the emotions, how, what's the first step to getting things correct or getting on the right path with it? Yeah. So for me, the first thing is to take an assessment, like, where am I at? Where am I not? What am I trying to get to? Am I trying to save for college or get a master's? Am I trying to save for a house? Am I trying to buy a car? Uh, what are the things that I'm trying to do? And and then figuring out, well, what do I need to get there? So if if I'm trying to buy a new car, maybe I need to start putting away 300 bucks a month if I want to pay cash for it, or I need to up my credit score. So I need to get an assessment of where do I want to go? Uh, where am I now? And then what are the tools that I'm going to need to get there? And that's what we help people do is to set the goals and then figure out the baby steps Instead of just, oh, we just go from A to Z and then everything's perfect. No, okay, great. We got to start saving some money. We got to build up our credit. Um, we got to curb our spending mm-hmm. and, and sort of look at that. It's unique for each person. And I guess in some of them, you're, you're getting into specific habits that people have absolutely you know, developed throughout, you know, through, through years where it may be, you know, money comes in and they just freely spend it. So I guess that can sometimes be challenging to correct people's behavior. Absolutely. And what I found, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I find if most, if my client's comfortable with $5,000 in his bank account, he's comfortable with 5,000. So an inheritance comes in for 50,000 bucks, he's going to spend right back to the 5,000 or she. And, and so it's like, what's our comfort level? Some people are comfortable that it's not overdrafted. Some people Mm -hmm. are comfortable uh, only if there's at least 50,000 in the bank or a hundred thousand. And, and so we tend to spend towards our comfort and we get our money right back where we feel like safe. Do you think it's more if people don't know what to do? So let's say they wanted to buy that new car, or buy that new house, or they, you know, it's almost like uh, an, a, some kind of addiction where they just, they know what they shouldn't be doing it, or they just don't know how to, how to actually change their behavior for it. I think for a lot of people, they just don't know better, right? They know they should probably be saving, but they're not quite sure how to do it. A lot of people will tell me, I'm going to save when I get the big bonus, or I'm going to save when I get a windfall. Well, mm-hmm. it's never happening, right? That, that moment's never coming. So just start saving five bucks. Just start saving 50 bucks. Just start creating the habit 
in little baby steps that are digestible, that don't hurt. And then it makes it easier to then increase the savings. But I think a lot of people, they just don't know better and they think they're going to get to it. Um, And they don't want to ask for help because that's silly. Um, But when clients call me and say, hey, I just got an inheritance, I don't want to blow it. You know, my cousin blew through their money. Let's come up with a strategy. Let's sit down and like, let's make a plan. Yeah. And I think that's, I see that a lot on inheritances where people just revert back to what they know. And that's where, you know, one of the the few times you'll see people just go through it very quickly, just because they're, they know, like you said, their bank account should have $5,000 in it. If it has 50, they're going to spend 45 to get back down to the five. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, and 10 years later, they're saying, oh, my God, I could have bought a house with that $300,000. You could have or the 50 or, you know, they could have done something that showed uh, some substance from yeah. from that investment. But they they just it's yeah, it's it's not conscious. It's not intentional. Um, yeah. The other thing you mentioned, too, is the baby steps. Start with yeah. baby steps. Mm-hmm. I promote that a lot with saving in someone's 401k. Yeah. And I think, you know, 401ks replacement for the most part for a pen, you know, for these pensions that were there years earlier and, you know, they have like everything pros and cons. But one thing that's good that I see people is if they can automate the savings, yeah, it, you know, they, they, it just, they kind of grow into what's, what, what that savings and they don't miss it. And, and it just kind of happens. And all of a sudden they look, you know, six months, a year, two years later, and they're like, Whoa, I actually start, I'm starting to save up money in this. So, you know, in addition to the baby steps, I, I do like automation with savings as well. I think automation with savings is great. And it's a way that we can trick ourselves for the better. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, I was terrible at saving. Uh, and I loved using credit cards. You know, I thought it was free money, I, you know, mm-hmm. and then you pay it back like double by the time you pay interest. But what I did was, and this is don't have a savings account linked to your checking. That is not a yeah. savings account. <laughs> That's overdraft uh, for most people. Uh, I set up six, um, seven different bank accounts um, with different online um, banks. And I just 20 bucks here, five bucks here, 30 bucks here. And I just had it happen. And then I started having it every once a week. Some of them would mm-hmm. let me take out once a week. And so I, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I've got 3000 bucks over there. Oh my God. And, and then it was sort of got fun. Then yeah. I was like, hey, let's see if I can get it up to 6000 really quick. And, yeah. and it changed my mindset, but I had to trick myself. Do you use the different bank accounts almost like the the profit first methodology where they have a purpose or do you kind of just, I'll just keep them in six different spots? And no, I, do- I do. I have purpose accounts. So I have my, my business uh, account, which is great because I like to keep that one really robust. So I don't take the money out for personal. It's yeah. I, I sort of make it a separate entity. And then I have a, a guilt-free spend play money account that I currently put $1,000 a month in it. For a while, it was just 50 bucks. But that money, sometimes I'll build it up three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand bucks. I can take a really nice vacation. Or sometimes it's down really low. But if there's no money in that account, I don't get any play money. Yeah. It is that is my play money. And then each of my accounts, I have one set up for a rental property, I have one set up for the mortgage and the household stuff. And so I've laid it all out so that I know each account what needs to get funded. And then I have all my my savings accounts that I just like to put money into um, as expenses, right? I, that's, that's a budget item. Putting money into my savings account is an expense. Yeah. It's like the modern version of the envelope system. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All digital now, but uh, people, I've talked to people recently where they're still using, you know, cash in the envelope system. And if that works for them, go for it. You know what? It works. It works. Even in the digital world, I tell people sometimes, Hey, just use the envelope system for like three months just to get the feel of it. 
if you can't yeah. quite grasp it with the digital. Yeah, I think I, I see that a lot too, where people need that structure. They need that discipline. They need a little bit of help with having that discipline and, you know, having the, the whether it's multiple online accounts, the envelopes, that kind of gives them that framework where they know, okay, if I follow this, I'm going to, you know, have enough money in this bucket, have enough money in this bucket. So yeah, it is one way of definitely having success with it. Yeah. And I, you know, I think for me, like I had to trick myself because, and I think this is true for other people. And I, I mean, I admit this, but every once in a while, you know, I'm working with a client. I'm like, Oh, look at that. They, they, Oh, they made a million dollars and they, they've got this property and they're doing that. And gosh, they're, do- Oh, I have, I have that. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Right. And I'm sitting there going, Oh my God, I'm still like 20 and I'm struggling. No, that's not true. Right. Yes. But I still have this little record sometimes going, Oh, look at that. Oh, wait, <laughs> stop. Check in. Yeah. <laughs> not reality. Yeah. I see that a lot with people and paying taxes. So let's say not the person, you know, not the W2 employee, but someone right. who's maybe self-employed has their own business. It's just so easy to get behind where if you don't have that tax bucket where let's say you're making quarterly payments, right. you just say, all right, I'll do, I'll, I'll pay this at the end of the year. All of a sudden it gets to the end of the year, it gets to April and it's like, all right, I don't have the money for this. And then right. it's, and then it just snowballs because then you get behind there and you get behind and you just, <sighs> the cycle just keeps, keeps going. It's the worst. I always, I mean, I know this isn't the best way, but I always overpay. I overwithhold on everything because mm-hmm. for me, emotionally writing a check to the IRS is very upsetting. So I'd rather overpay at the beginning and get it back. And even though I know I could do other things with my money, I, that's my comfort level. Yeah. And I know you mentioned baby steps um, and you talk a lot about, I guess you were trekking in, in Nepal yeah. and something there clicked with regarding baby steps. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what happened was um, I took a group of friends to Nepal and we, you know, it's, it's five, 6,000 bucks to, to get over there and do yeah. this whole thing. And you're hiking, you know, you know, you're there for three, four weeks. And uh, we hiked the first day and it was really intense and we hadn't even really done the hiking. We were just getting into the national park and stuff. And all my friends said, you know what, this is really hard. Let's quit. <laughs> uh, let's just go back to Kathmandu and get massages and uh, do other things. And I was like, no freaking way. I spent 5,000 yeah. bucks. I'm getting my money's worth. But they were like, literally everybody was like, we're going to quit. This is too much. And so I just quick thinking, I said, look, I'll tell you what, let's just hike for an hour. And at the end of an hour, let's see if we want to hike another hour. And let's don't think about hiking to base camp. Let's just actually, let's just take it hour by hour. And and so what we did was the first four days, we literally every hour, oh, all right, do we want to hike another hour? Or do we want to go back? All right, we'll go one more hour. And then by the fifth day, we started doing increments of two, three hours. By about the eighth or ninth day, we knew we knew we're in. But yeah. it was overwhelming for everybody to think about. We're going to be hiking for the next fifteen days, yeah. and we're trying to go way up. The, like, oh my god! So it was like, let's just hike an hour, and and that was really really helpful. And it took everybody um, out of this overwhelm mindset. Yeah. There's a lot of things we do that are overwhelming, but you know, going back to habits. And like you said, baby steps, you make little changes and there's different ways to, to kind of link those changes. You know, you can all of a sudden you do it for a little bit, a little bit. And all of a sudden you look back and you're like, wow, we really made it far in this case or accomplished a lot, uh, you know, with, with respect to what you're trying to do. Absolutely. It's just so much more digestible. You know, it's interesting. I didn't realize this until just a couple of years ago, but when I ran my first marathon, I ran a marathon in, in Athens. It was the original a marathon course. Oh, and I ran that one kilometer at a time, yeah. right? I did not think about it as, oh, I'm going to run all these kilometers or 26.1 miles. 
it was in kilometers. And I was like, thank goodness. I was like 32, 31. Anyway, ran a kilometer. Cool. Let me run another kilometer. It was the same kind of mindset. So I've sort of intuitively been doing things in bite size because that was just easier for me. That philosophy works with something like paying down debt. Um, Absolutely. You look at it and it's like, this is overwhelming. I'm never going to be able to get out from it. How would you, how, how would you look at someone? Maybe they have student loan debt. They have credit card debt. They have a mortgage, which is maybe classified as good debt, but you look at all the debt. How does someone, and it's overwhelming to them. How do they put a plan together to kind of tackle that debt? Yeah. So what I do, and I do two parts. I, first of all, I ask everybody list out all your credit cards and all your debt. And then right next to that, list out the interest rate you're paying so that I can look at that and go, oh, that's 3%. Oh, that's 22%. So I want to look at what is my debt and what are the interest rates. Uh, And then what I will do is normally I'll maybe pay down one or two of the smaller balances first. So I feel like I got some headway. Right. Because if I'm just going to focus on the one that's $27,000 and I'm paying 50 bucks a month, I'm not feeling like the love's happening. So yeah. I want to look at, oh, okay, great. Here's a couple small ones. Let's just get them out of the way. Now we have two less cards or we've got the student loan debt. So let me add, you know, 50 bucks to that one. Let me accelerate that one. And then as you pay down, as you pay off some of the other credit cards, you then take those payments that you were paying, apply it to the, the remaining credit card debt or the remaining student loan debt. And, and so that is a way to me that is digestible is you come up with the plan, you pay off the highest interest rate ones first but you also pay off those small little balances first too to feel like you've got a win. At the same time, I actually encourage people to start saving like 50 bucks, a hundred bucks. People say, well, that's crazy because you're paying interest. No, I'm trying to create a habit. And if I'm creating a habit of I only get debt or I can only save and I can't have both, I just don't think it's a healthy relationship. And so I want to see people, yes, I want you paying down your debt, but I also want to really encourage you to reinforce save for the future, save for the future, save for the future. Yeah. So I think you bring up a good point. It's not always about just looking at numbers, right? Because if you look at numbers, it probably would make sense to just focus on the highest interest rate. Don't save, for, you know, don't save that 50 bucks. Don't worry about some of the smaller, you know, balances that you have. Just focus on the higher interest rate because you're paying the most interest on that. Yeah. But like you said, emotions and behaviors are so intertwined with what we do it makes sense to, to get some wins and, and pay off some of the little ones. And you can even then take what you were paying to the little ones and, and you know move that on to the next one. Right. But also create that habit of saving because you know, we're, you're going to have a plan where you eventually do pay off this debt. And you don't want to just have to start from scratch and figuring out how to save because now you have this battle between am I going to go back into debt or am I going to save? And it's, a, it's battling. Yeah. If, if you've already got that savings ingrained, it could obviously go a long way to building up that good habit. Absolutely. We want to keep reinforcing good habits and, and then rewarding ourselves too. And we pay off the credit card, next credit card. Great. Go out and have, celebrate a dinner with cash. <laughs> like, yeah. right? Don't charge it. For myself, I literally took all my credit cards, threw them in a Tupperware and froze them. Because if I didn't have access to them, I couldn't have that impulse to pull them out. Yeah. And I only use, I mean, I have debit cards. I really, I've got credit cards, but they sit in a drawer. I, I They're just there for my credit score, yeah. <laughs> thankfully, or an emergency, God forbid. Yeah. What do you do if you see, you know, if you're working with uh, uh, two spouses 
and they're on complete opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of how they think about or how they their behaviors to money. How do you get them kind of on a on a good path forward or a good plan? Yeah, so you know that's interesting. I have clients that will come in and go, "All right, Bob, dinner's riding on this. Who's right?" <laughs> and I always say to them, "Well, let me ask you this: Are you guys on opposite teams and trying to beat each other, or are you a, a cohesive team that's trying to win this together?" And they're like. Oh, I said, because here's the thing. We all have different beliefs. Doesn't make anybody right or wrong. You know, I have a lot, I work with a lot of creative folks. So I've got some people that are very creative and then their spouses are very, I'm a teacher. I'm a this and life should be, my mom taught me this. And so this is wrong. And Mm -hmm. I, I just really have to say, look, there's just different ways that we all approach this and let's get really curious about each other. So if one of you loves to spend, maybe then you're not the one in charge of the groceries and the household budget. And you find your strengths. And so we do a lot of talking about what comes up for you if somebody's out spending left and right or somebody's hoarding every dollar because, like, who knows what's going to happen, right? There's Both of those are based on extreme fear. Um, and so how do we find something in the middle to, like, allow them to not necessarily be the same but appreciate that they bring in their strengths? Yeah, so it's not just compromising, but they're both going to have – you know, whether it is different views or, or, but it's, I guess, kind of finding some middle ground where, you know, they then, and also playing to each other's strength, uh, you know, in what areas they are good at. Yeah. And there has to be communication. You know, if you're with somebody that's a constant spender that lives on the edge, that's gambling or just blowing through money and you may not have a high tolerance for, for pain, that may not be a sustainable relationship. It just may not be. And so sometimes you have to really look at that. I, you know, I ask people and when I do my podcast, I always ask people, did you, did you run a credit score on your, on your spouse? Did you get their financial backgrounds? And sometimes they'll say, yes, I did. And other times they're like, no, I just, I took a chance. It's important to have conversations about money with each other and not conflicts, not arguments, but learning to understand where we're similar, where we're different and really communicating so that, hey, that really freaks me out when you pick expensive restaurants because I'm thinking we could have made that at home, right? Okay, yeah. well, and then what's the fear? What's going on? And what's our budget? Is that true? Is that a belief? And and like actually work through this stuff as a couple. Yeah, and it's probably challenging to, you know, because it's probably a fine line between when it becomes discussion to where it becomes confrontational, you know, where the other the other person feels that they're getting attacked or that it's, it's confrontational. But I'm sure getting that communication out there is healthy. Yeah. And that's where a lot of times I will work with couples um, in communication just to help them start to have the conversations so they can like that's an acquired skill. Having conversations, having difficult conversations is not something that we're all trained to do. I do a lot of difficult conversation workshop exercises in, in trying to help people really learn how to set a boundary, how not to get freaked out when something's coming back at them and really learning to stay and have the conversation. Yeah. I know you mentioned like where your money habits came from, from your tax practice, from Mm -hmm. things going on personally. But I know you talk a little bit about uh, some things that happened in Africa that developed some of it as well. Yeah. So prior to Africa, I was taught, and I think many people are, um, some people may resonate with this. I was taught that I am my accomplishments. So I needed to go to a good college. I needed to get straight A's. I needed to get awards. I, my value was in what I could produce. And so when I went to Africa, these people, the average income was $100 a person a year. They were extremely happy. 
Uh, they were extremely giving and I had just gotten a Mercedes and like, cause you need that. Uh, right. And so I'm looking at all these people and I'm thinking, how can you be happy? Like you, something is wrong with you people. You're happy. You don't even have these nice things and you don't have accomplishments. Right. It, it really messed with my mind. I really had to do some soul searching and realized that I was working off of premise that I didn't really believe either, but that I had taken on, that I had agreed to. Being able to let that go and actually come from a place of gratitude and come from a place of, wow, I have so much. I've got running water. Like I have a car that gets me to work. So, so many things. I have clothes that I can go buy new ones if I don't like the ones that I have. And and just so many places where I just took it as entitlement or uh, everybody has that. I realized I had a lot of abundance. And so I shifted really to, to gratitude. Yeah, it was an amazing shift for me. It was really mind blowing to realize how much I was attached to being my accomplishments and how much pressure that was putting on me. Yeah, it kind of puts things into perspective when you're when you're over there and you see yeah. you know how things go. You're also the CFO of the comedy store? I am the CFO of the comedy store. <laughs> How'd uh, you get uh, get into that? <laughs> well, I was actually doing stand-up comedy because you know, gotta pay the bills, so yeah. uh counting wasn't cutting it. So I was doing stand-up and basically I was performing at the comedy store. I had a show there and doing different things. And one of my friends told Mitzi that I was a CPA because apparently the comedy store at the time had about $100,000 in payroll taxes they hadn't paid. They were getting ready to close the doors. There had been some mismanagement and Mitzi was had been ill. And so she called me up and she's like, you got to help save the store. We're in trouble. And you're a CPA. And Vicky said to call you. I'm like, okay. I didn't expect to be there long, but I've you know been there 24 years now. Yeah, I just I love the store being a CPA. I was able to work with the bank. I was able to work with the IRS. You have credibility when you have CPA after your name. Yeah, I just I I did it mainly because I love all my friends are comics. I wanted to make sure everybody had a stage to perform on. And it's the world famous comedy store. So uh, I stayed. Nice. Are you still doing uh, stand up there as well? I'm not doing as much because it's hard to do stand up and then come off the stage and then everybody's like, "Hey, can you sign my paycheck?" Hey, here's it. I'm like, this is a-. so I, you know, coffee houses and little places where, uh, or I go down to our La Jolla club and do mm-hmm. comedy where I can be a little more uh, conspicuous. Nice. <laughs> okay, so we're just about out of time, Bob. I want to thank you for being on the show today. How best can someone learn about more about you and and what you do? Absolutely, they can check out the Money Nerve. Dot com. That's nerve, not nerd. Um, I'm a nerd, but uh, the money nerve, uh, they can check out my um, my podcast. I've got a book. We have an online course, Mastering the Emotions of Money, and they can just reach out. We really love being a resource and helping people learn to have a better, healthier relationship with their money. Great. And we'll link to all that in the, uh, in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, so, so thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.